Happy, happy new year, welcoming 2021 and a brand new episode of In Her Lens. My name is Nadine, and in this podcast, I chat with today's and tomorrow's women in film. Denise Ekalikum is a Berlin-based self-taught writer and director. She grew up between Cameroon and Germany, living in Brazil and Japan as well. Denise is putting herself through her own film school and is currently working on a four-part short film series that is based loosely on the seasons of the year. Her first films, Winter Solstice, Natsu's Treasure, and Respringendo are completed, and her fourth short is underway. In this episode, Denise and I talk about her journey following her passion for filmmaking. We chat about bringing your multiple identities and experiences to the work that you do, and she shares her biggest learnings from the development of her short films in pre-production, on set, and in the edit room. We talk in depth about her work with Tyron Ricketts, Pantertainment, and their work with Germany's oldest film production company, Ufa. In a major move, and one of the first in Germany to do so, the company announced at the end of November of this year a diversity and inclusion quota, a commitment to representation on gender, disability, people of color, and LGBTQ+, both in front and behind the camera. I'm very grateful for this special episode. Here is Denise on In Her Lens. Welcome to In Her Lens. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited about this conversation. Um, I start every episode by asking about the most recent film that you've seen and a couple of your thoughts or feedback on it. Mm, that's a wonderful question. First of all, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored. Um, that's a good, I think the, the last film I actually saw was my film. Because <laughs> yesterday there was a screening um, where they showed like my three short films. And there was a Q&A afterwards. It was like all on Zoom. So that's oh, wow. basically the last thing I've watched. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> how, how was that, doing that through Zoom? It was so interesting. It was my first time. I think I've watched somebody else's film on Zoom like that. And obviously there are some technical difficulties. Sometimes the image lags and, you know, the sound's not really perfect. So I was very nervous about that. I mean, consciously I knew it can't be perfect. But I was just really stressed, oh my God, you know, like um, how are people going to perceive the films through this medium? But at the end of the day, I think I'm just very grateful that it's possible at all that, you know, we could gather some people and they could watch the films in a way. And it was still a shared experience, even though I didn't see them or they didn't see, you know, it wasn't this kind of sitting in a cinema together, but it was still mm-hmm. like a shared experience. And then people could ask questions and talk and that was very interesting it was so different but still so yeah that's a really interesting experience to have with your films that you they watched all three of them exactly so yeah. i think i told them also it was the first time that it was screened like that like all three films it was mostly mostly like you know at either at a festival or at some film screening it's one of the films that i chose to send there but it was the first time that they just decided to show everything i've done so mm-hmm. it, and they also did it in the order they were created. So the winter film and then the summer film and then the spring film, like yeah. all of them in a row. That was that was quite interesting. So I was obviously very curious to see what the reactions are that people have when they watch it in a row like that. Um, but I got a little bit of it on on Zoom. So interesting. I love yeah. that. 
Well, let's get to know you a little bit and let's talk a little bit about the way you grew up and um, where you're from. Yes. So I was born in uh, Douala, Cameroon. Um, Both my parents lived there, but then we moved to Germany when I was three. So I did kindergarten here. And I think at some point, because my first language was French, but obviously I adapted German then as a child. But then when I was five, we moved back and I already had forgotten all the French and I had to relearn it very fast because nobody spoke German. And yeah, I went to elementary school there. And by the time I was done with that, I think I did one year of junior high in Cameroon. And then we came back here again. And I've been here more or less ever since. So my teenage years were in Berlin. I went to like a French school in Berlin. And I graduated here, went to university here. I've been abroad also quite a bit, like right after school. I went to Brazil for six months to do like voluntary work and also just to, you know, have a little break between school and university. And uh, yeah, the second thing I did, I think I went to Japan. I was always very interested in Japan. So when I was studying, we had to do an internship. So I went to Japan, uh, I think twice during the course of my studies. But basically most of the time, like my base, my home base has been Berlin ever since my my teens, my early teens. What did your parents do? Was creativity something that was important at home? Like, how do you think your love for for film came forth and, and that kind of artistic expression? Yeah, I think, I mean, especially looking back and also, you know, at other families, because you always assume that your family is just normal and standard. And it's kind of looking back, it's, yeah, some things were different. And at least for me, some things were good in the sense that both of them had a creative outlet. Like my father is a university professor, but he's also a writer, like an historian mm-hmm. and a writer. He writes also fiction and, you know, um, uh, fiction books. So, uh, and theater plays even, I came to realize at some point. So it's really? actually quite close. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> um, and he was always very encouraging to all children to just kind of follow their passion. So we didn't have this kind of typical immigrant child experience where you get forced mm-hmm. to be like a lawyer or a doctor. It was really very much just do what you want to do, whatever your passion is, follow that. And my mother was a school teacher in Cameroon. Like, uh, um, she was teaching German actually. And um, she didn't work. I think she didn't get a work permit. There was those weird rules back mm-hmm. in the days when you came with your family. The husband got to work, but the wife didn't. Which is funny because yeah. it's a progressive country kind of putting the women back <laughs> in a certain way. I grew up um, in the Middle East, and we've talked about this a little bit, uh, that we relate very much to that kind of back and forth and, yeah. and, and moving around a lot. And my mom had the same experience. For her to get a work permit, it was a lot harder. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. So my mom didn't work for a very long time after she got here. But she was always a very creative person in the sense that, I mean, she, I think she introduced me to films in a certain way because she also liked watching very old films. So even when I was mm. a kid, like it was weird for me to watch like black and white films or musical, American musicals from, you know, um, 50s and 60s. And I really, yeah, I think um, I always had that creative outlet, but they were both also very creative people, you know, maybe not like on the top level, but somewhere they all had both had that outlet and I could kind of express myself and I was very encouraged to follow this dream that I had of being a filmmaker. Yeah. Are there any films that you distinctly remember from your childhood? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't think so. I think in terms of impact, actually, it was the stuff that scared me. <laughs> like when I watched some scary stuff, I remember there's this film... 
uh, I don't know what the name is in English. In German, it's called Der Tod steht in Gut. It's a movie with Bruce Willis where he's like a mortician or something and his wife dies. Yeah, his wife is dead, but then he can bring her back to life or something and she's still decaying, so he has to take care of it, her and she's a horrible person. And I remember watching very vividly, I was in Cameroon watching the trailer on TV and it was kind of this kind of morbid images of somebody mm -hmm. half dead and not really. And that scared me to death. So I remember that very distinctly. <laughs> so you um, you grew up kind of uh, your your kind of formative years as a teenager in, in Berlin and then you ended up going to university. What did you study? I studied um, international media and computing, it was called. So basically the, the story behind that is that, I mean, I always had an affinity for computing computers but um, I think at the age of 14 I already knew okay I want to do film I want to be a filmmaker I loved I started watching more and more and you know being in front of the tv a little bit too much because of it <laughs> and um, just really kind of you know with 14 I could actually express the dream that that's what I want to do you know watching all those making ups thinking wow I, I want to do that and but when I finished school I was quite young still I was uh, I graduated at 16 which sounded oh, wow. like a good thing, but then I couldn't do a lot of stuff because I wasn't 18 and you're supposed to be 18 for a lot of what you do afterwards. Uh -huh. So um, my first idea was, you know, let's go to film school. So I went to the film schools and I talked to them and they were like, yeah, you're way too young. Like, this is way too early. We don't take them with 18 and you're 16. So mm. we normally take people in the mid 20s with some life experience. So you go ahead and study something else and then you can come back, right? So, but I told them that even if I study something else, I would still be like barely 20. I wouldn't be in my mid-20s. And then they said, okay, we might make an exception for that. So, mm -hmm. I, be, so I basically tried to see what I can do, you know, and time was passing. Um, so that's why I actually ended up in Brazil because the year had already started and I didn't find something that I wanted to do. I didn't want to study film studies, you know, just the theoretical part. Because I felt mm -hmm. like that might bore me or even frustrate me because I actually want to do it and just reading about it wouldn't be what I want. So I think I found something called um, Mediengestalter, which is like media creator, where you also, mm. it's a practical, uh, it's not actually a, a study, it's like a practical um, apprenticeship, but you also get to do a lot with editing and camera work. And I was like, okay, I can kind of learn some stuff until I go to the university, but they didn't take me either because I wasn't 18. Oh, so wow. yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, all that was left was just regular university. So I ended up studying media and computing, which was, you know, media, but in the reality of it, it was 100% computing. And, uh, but I was interested in computers. So my mom said, you know, go ahead and learn that. That can always be, you know, practical. And it really was because it paid. It paid the bill until last year, so thanks for that. <laughs> Fair, um, yeah. And yeah, so that's why I ended up studying and basically becoming a programmer in the course of those mm -hmm. four years that I spent there. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about growing up internationally and carrying different identities within you um, and how that kind of impacts the work that you do as an artist and as a yes. filmmaker and how it impacts the kind of stories that you want to tell and how you tell them. Um, yeah, I mean, as a person, it's very obvious. I mean, in a certain sense, I'm kind of all over the place. I think people sometimes have a hard time kind of pinpointing me to one identity because I'm not, you know, the typical African girl. I'm definitely not a typical German girl. And I have this kind of affinity for Japan and Japanese culture. And it's all kind of a part of me. But personally, I love that, you know, personally, mm -hmm. I really enjoy um, the influence it, is, it has had on me. And I also really like, um, yeah, I mean, I think if I had grown up in Cameroon, for example, entirely, I would definitely not have been been the same person and have the same kind of insights you know because sometimes 
switching cultures makes you realize stuff because mm -hmm. when you're in one culture so many things are given so many things are normal quote unquote and you think that's the way it is and then you move to another culture and you see people can do it entirely differently and that's still fine and you might even discover a way of doing things that is not the way it was done where you're from but that really rings with your personality the way that you mm. are so i've always been very keen on just taking whatever comes my way especially like This first transition, or the one that I remember, because the one with three years old, I don't remember so much, but the one when I was 10, moving back to Germany, kind of rediscovering Germany in the German culture and seeing the stuff that I like about it or that kind of ring true to my personality more than the Cameroonian way of doing things where I was like, yeah, you don't have to choose actually, right? You don't have to say I'm either fully here or fully there. You can just take whatever is kind of you so you can be you to, you know, to a full extent in a way. And that's how I like using different cultures and my experiences to kind of amplify my personality, if that makes sense, to kind of be more yeah. me. And that's why I love discovering, again, how things can be different in another culture. And definitely the experience in Brazil influenced me a lot. It was my first time also away from home, you know, like without my parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, I traveled a lot, but they were always there. It was my first time I was 17, I think, kind of on my own in a different culture. Also discovering stuff that I wasn't really aware um was that different for example structural racism is something that is right. very 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 um part of those countries where slavery has existed you know in a way mm -hmm. that it wouldn't be for example in germany where um you know it's just a different approach i was like ah okay that's a different thing so that's something i struggled with there but i also discovered and came to understand a little bit better and also myself a little bit better or to defend myself for example you know Yeah, at 17 yeah. also away from home and you know dealing with certain things so um and also discovering that i you know that i really like kids because i lived with a, in a house with small children and i loved it way more than in the house with a teenager so i was like yeah i actually enjoy that too so um for me kind of formed my personality because i just take everything i can everything that rings with me you know whatever culture that would be um and also whatever language so my favorite language would be just using all of those languages at once you know whatever comes out first Um, I very much relate yeah. that. So whatever um, comes out is just coming exactly, out. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, not everybody can understand me, but <laughs> that's how I would like to speak. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting because it does become a thing where you actually start through travel, but I think just growing up between borders, I would say mm -hmm. you get really uh, not self-reliant, but you really do learn about yourself and value yourself mm -hmm. in different places because you don't necessarily belong to this one thing. Yeah. You said you notice things that you value, but you also then find, oh, what do I value? And do I want to take that on or do I not mm -hmm. want to take that on? And I think that's a really interesting intersection to be at as an artist. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, it also helps you, I think, I mean, the way you said it, right? It kind of, you start, you have to kind of find yourself in between all of that, but it also helps you finding yourself in general, because I think that's a, it's a journey that everybody has to make, really finding themselves who they really mm -hmm. are, what their voice is. And since you're kind of have to do that from early on, then it kind of makes that easier, that path easier. You know, you don't lose yourself. I mean, it can happen that you lose yourself, but you have a stronger sense of self because it is not so easily defined and easily put in a box. And in terms of right. artistic, you know, artistic uh, endeavors, definitely, because the artistic work is always an expression of yourself and how you view the world, you know. And what I try to do mm -hmm. with my films is just to show the world through my eyes and not necessarily in a way where it's, you know, super complex. I, I always, it's always important for me that people can relate and that many people can relate. 
because um, I sometimes see things differently than, than other mm. people. And I want to be able to communicate that to them. So, yeah, I try to even through simple issues kind of put in stuff that I think I've seen, I've experienced that maybe other people haven't really connected with, you know, whether mm, it be just mm-hmm. psychological issues that we're all going through, but maybe haven't reflected yet or, you know, just um, life situations, you know, like the little black girl in Japan, which is she's not the mm-hmm. only one, you know, and, and, and she moves to that space and it's her space that was, I think, very important to me in that film that it's her world you know not a foreign she's not foreign the world's not foreign that's where she belongs because yeah also the sense yeah. of identity belonging somewhere or where your home is which can be many homes in my case also but those are my homes anyway i think in many ways it's a big skill and um uh, ability to navigate work that is multicultural that's being told in different languages with different perspectives and understanding both in writing and on set between people how have you experienced this for yourself like how do you show up for the work about the multilingual part it's always an interesting part to me right so i've written i think so far um two films in german but i think in the last one i slipped in some brazilian things in there you know with the character <laughs> and everything and I could also inspire it from my take uh, inspiration from my own experience, which I like. And there's a Japanese film, obviously, where I also had to write in Japanese, which was interesting. Uh, and yeah. I want to do more of that. Like, um, I would love for the last film. I'm not brave enough yet, but I feel like I would love for there to be a like my characters are from different cultures and definitely are multilingual. So I'm really struggling with am I also expressing that in, you know, the way they talk, making subtitles mandatory for any kind of audiences because it's not in one language anymore. And that's something people right. don't do very often with film. Or do I just keep them in one language and make it easy? But my sense is that, you know, they would speak, you know, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, in a mixed way or, you know, I would love I would love to express that in a film because People who aren't yeah. used to that are always are surprised when I do it, but everybody who is like me does that, you know, just slipping between languages and everything. And I would love to see that in film because it's such a big reality of mine. So, yeah. And in terms of sets, I, I love that I can, you know, what I love about filmmaking, about directing especially, is that I feel that it's the one job that I've had so far where I can just use everything, you know, like just everything mm. I can do, every skill that I have, I can put it there. And I had a similar experience before when I worked at the Berlin Film Festival. I was working as a guest manager. We we're taking care of the film teams that are coming to the festival from all over. And they had mm-hmm. a very, um, it was really important to them that people uh, get greeted and taken care of in their own language. So they would hire people with multiple language skills and just you know, put them on different films. And that's what I did too. And I just realized it's the first job that I do where I can use all my languages, which felt great because in programming or other jobs, it doesn't right. matter, you know, like maybe English, right. but that's that. So I love that. And I see like in this uh, directing, I can use that too, because I have internet. Berlin is a very international city. I don't have to limit myself to an all German crew. I can take people who are new to Berlin, but you know, really good at what they've done so far in their country and I can communicate with them you know in French or English or you know um, Portuguese even sometime I had on, on the last set and and that's really fun that I can just put all of that in there you know and all of the other things mm-hmm. that I've learned this kind of also multicultural um, approach or feeling or sensibility you know that I can have people from all over 
um, with different cultural backgrounds, but still make them feel at ease, make them feel comfortable, communicate in a way that we can kind of get the best out of each other. So you are a self-taught filmmaker. Um, I want to kind of break down the magnitude of film studies and talk just about some of the lessons and practices that you've learned in the different stages of, of making a film. Let's talk a little bit about pre-production. What is kind of the biggest piece of advice that you have about pre-production from your experience? Um, I think my biggest piece of advice for pre-production is one very short sentence don't panic <laughs> because it's it's so i feel like it's a roller coaster every single time i yeah. mean maybe it's also especially because um you know we don't we don't have a big budget we have to kind of see that we get things done cheap you know good things done you know and in very cheap ways but but so that's a struggle but i feel like even if we had millions of dollars it would still be a struggle and and that mm -hmm. is sometimes very nerve-wracking because you can have one day where everything seems to work out fine you finally got that great location and we have uh, you know a little room and i don't know you found that one thing that the makeup artist needed and everything feels great and tomorrow yeah. you know so and so got sick or you realize that you know like whoever is not really up par and you have to think about you know am i still gonna work with that person but if it's not working out do i, do I fix that so especially on the like the, the second film i did was more spontaneous the approach you know the japanese film that we did but the first and the second were very pre-produced because i'm also the kind of person i'm very organized i like things you know mm. that's my german side i like things organized so i i put a lot of effort into the pre-production to kind of get everything down to the letter to make sure nothing misses but obviously it's more stressful you know because things don't happen mm. that way life doesn't happen that way so you have to be flexible sometimes sometimes just take you know things um Try to keep your cheerful attitude, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, not despair because it can be done. As I said, it can be done with lots of money and it can be done with nothing at all. All you need is just mm -hmm. to persevere and really believe in it and, and you can do it, you know, and not lose your nerve, obviously, when something seems to go wrong. Yeah, I, I might, I drive them all crazy with my list and my, I have actually like project management tools that I use for programming normally that I kind of, you know, use for my sets. And then I, I really feel how everybody else is going like, what, what is she doing? <laughs> This is too much. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But it's a hey, you made it happen. That's I think that's the most important the part. Most important yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, we have a film, and that's the most important thing. One big thing that you ensure is happening on your set to make sure either that the film happens or that I think one of the things that is the most important to me is the mood on set, right? That people get along. So I remember for the very first film, I didn't know anybody, and I was basically scouting people off the internet. And having this kind of also really grateful moments where I was like, wow, that person already did this, this, this and this and that and I have no credentials at all and they're working with me. That's great. I'm, you know, but when I met people, it was always more about not so much what you had done before, but about kind of the vibe that we share. If we communicate properly, if you seem like a nice person, the first one, especially I was very much in my head, not paying attention to what was happening around but then some um, production assistant was shooting like background uh, material and we edited a making off. And then I realized, hey, pe people had fun, you know, like people had fun on set. And even when I wasn't there, even when I was in my head, they were always mm. connecting with each other too and goofing around. And we did have a couple of good laughs. And I felt like that's something that's super important to me. Like I want, like I remember there was one person on set that wasn't in a good mood and that bothered me a lot. Mm. As a creative person, I want you to be happy. So it's very important that we communicate. I don't dictate i don't force i really want people to understand what i'm trying to do i want to understand what they want to do i want them to offer me you know the best of their craft you know 
So I'm very open yeah. to ideas and I want them to feel like we're doing a good thing together, but I also want them to feel like they're being taken care of, you know, just in terms of right, food right. and if it's cold out, that we have tea, that we have warmth, that we have just everything we need or we can do with our budget. But I mean, those are the things that don't even cost so much money. Taking care of people is not expensive, yeah. you know, like the right camera equipment is expensive, but taking care of people, making them feel good, you know, keeping them fat and happy. Switching over a little bit to post-production, what is that experience like for you? And like, what is one thing that you keep an eye out throughout? Post-production is, I think, one of the most painful experiences. I remember the first one, I was like, wow, this is this is hard. This is not just hard, this is painful. Because um, mm. I feel like shooting is the most fun part. Like you have the pre-production that is very stressful. Shooting is also stressful and so many things happen, but still you're kind of creating and that feels great, right? And then that's done and you go to post-production and at the beginning, for me at least, it always feels like everything failed. Nothing was good. We only had horrible shots and <laughs> we're never going to make a film out of this. <laughs> but, you know, obviously you go through the process and you start being creative again. And I think that's what I love about that and that I didn't know is how much creativity goes into the editing process. That the creativity is not just mm -hmm. writing or directing or acting or whatever it's really at the end when you have all those images how you put them together to tell the best possible story that's that's a lot of creative effort so so it's sometimes as i said especially at the beginning for me personally always very painful um because mm. you kind of also have to that's the moment where you kind of go away from all the, the images in your mind because when i'm writing i have images in my mind when we're shooting i have images in my mind i see the images but i still have something in my head But when I watched what I what we have shot and that's so final, like we're never we're not gonna reshoot or something like that, I know very much mm -hmm. that okay, this is what we have and I have to kind of forget what my mind had, take a look at what we had and try to tell the exact same story with that. And um and I right. think it's also an emotional process because I know that a lot of time I shot exactly what I wanted to shoot, but it's just that kind of, you know, there's a reality now that cannot be altered in a certain way. There was this kind of one experience that I had in high school that I always kind of felt like hmm, that was kind of the moment where I felt like this collaborative work would be for me is that I always, always loved to draw. So I was drawing something. I was always drawing, you know, instead. I mean, I was also listening, but drawing at the same time. <laughs> and there was a friend that is sitting next to me and I was drawing this picture and I was really enjoying it. And then she took a pen and she started kind of drawing on the same picture. And my first reaction was like, Uh, what are you, why, <laughs> why are you ruining my picture? It's not going to be my picture anymore. I have this thing in my head and now you start doing uh -huh. other stuff and it's changing. And at first I was really fighting it like, oh, like I'm being polite, but I really don't want you to do that right now. <laughs> but then she just continued and, she, and another friend came in and started doing that too. And then at the end of the day, we had this picture that none of us would have done alone, which was actually mm. very cool. Nothing I would have, it looked like nothing I, I ever did. And it was really cool in a way that I couldn't have done it by myself. And I was like, wow, this is actually quite cool, you know, like letting go of your expectation and just you doing that thing, but kind of having other people's art get into it. And I love that experience. And I remembered it very much when I started working on film. I was like, this is exactly that. This is exactly yeah. that experience that I, I had back then. Yeah. Yeah, what you're saying right now is exactly what directing is, right? Because I think you have this, it's so important, vision is, you know, that's like the one job of, of the director to hold everyone else together is that vision, the thing that gets you to the end. But um, there is this letting go element and this inclusionary element yeah. that comes where, yeah, you have to let other people do, you can't do it alone. And um, that that instinct of like, oh no, Oh, actually, and then you come out somewhere else, but it's all driven by this collective 
love and um it's a really exciting and challenging part about directing i think definitely and i think at the end of the day if you trust your vision and i trust mine like i know what i want and i know what i have in mind i know and i think that's what i love about it too because with it, as a director you have to kind of hold it all together right you have to so so that because everybody does their own job but you have to kind of make sure that everything comes together that a people feel safe to kind of offer their own creativity and b of course that we all still go in the same direction that you know there's not one department that sways and goes somewhere so let's talk about your films your short films um i'm gonna say them in english because i want to pronounce you can pronounce them for me but winter solstice and natsu's treasure and Respringendo. Yes, there you go. <laughs> uh, these three films, they play beautifully with kind of like a, a magic, like a larger universe, as something bigger guiding or confronting or shocking the characters. So where did the um, ideas for these films come from? And did you always plan for them to be in a series? Um, yes. So I think the, the, the origins of it is that basically, um, I think... As I said, right, I, I went into computing at the end of the day. And then after I finished studying, my daughter was born. I started working. And in my mind, I was just moving further and further away from this idea, you know, of, of studying film, which was what I wanted to do, because obviously I would have needed a grant and I wouldn't have gotten a grant because I already studied, you know, and I had a child. So even studying would have been difficult, blah, blah. So um, I felt like, you know, that's kind of moving away. So what can I do? And at some point I realized I'm really frustrated with this work that I do. I like it, I'm good mm. at it, but it's not what I want to do. It's just, I know that I want to do something else. So I took a break and in that break, I was six months in Japan when I met my daughter when she was small and I was like, okay, actually I still want to do filmmaking. I kind of realized that. So I sat down and I wrote a script. Um, it was my very first without even knowing how to format it or what it's supposed to mm. be, look or sound like, just, you know, trying to tell a story. And a friend of mine told me, that, you know, if you, you know, if you're going to shoot it in Berlin, you got to consider that, you know, the seasons look very different in, in Germany. Like you can't mm. shoot like a like super happy film in winter. It won't look that good because there is no sun, basically, you know, and the images will tell something else. So she was like, you have to kind of keep that in mind, too. So I was like, OK, for this story, let me pick a season. Let me pick, you know, um, autumn. That was the story that I started telling back then, which is incidentally the one that I just finished writing right now um, that uh -huh. I'm going to shoot last. But so I wrote that little story. I think it wasn't that good yet because I had no idea what I was doing. But I think the basic sentiment was there. So I kind of gave that up and I kept thinking, how mm. can I go to film school? And I didn't find a way, you know, to kind of finance it, to find a way, you know, having a child and everything. So I gave up. I went back to work and I found myself again in this situation where I like, this is not what I want to do. You know, and I had a colleague who was very passionate about programming and that and he was doing it on a weekend. I was like, I'm not passionate. I can't do it. You know, I can be good at it, but I don't, I don't care, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, no, let me, this film thing, you know, just forget about film school, forget about getting in our relationships or, you know, whatever I think I need to be there. And let me just try to do something. Let me just try to write a film. Let me just try to make it. And then we'll see from there. So mm -hmm. then I wrote a story, you know, about, I think I wrote it as a short story for it about this guy and having this kind of fear dreams and everything. And I was like, ah, that, that sounds like winter. You know, that sounds cold. That sounds like winter. So that's basically where I felt like, hmm, let me do that as a series. Because A, I, I kind of had respect for this thing, filmmaking. I don't know if I'm going to be good at it. And I don't know if um, I'm even if it's going to be me. Maybe I have this fantasy that's, that's my thing. Mm. And maybe it's not. You know, I haven't tried it yet. So I felt like, okay, let me try to kind of make my own film school. So I make 
four short films. I know in film school they do a lot of short films. Let me just make four short films and then, you know, take the season's idea so that I, you know, make one film for every season and not a film that is telling one story, you know, that continues, but basically just having one main character, you know, currently struggling with something that they kind of need to deal with or overcome. Um, one theme, basically, and one one season. One theme, one season. So basically, the, the season always inspired the theme and the character kind of came came after that, the character and their struggles. So that's how the whole idea of doing the season series came came to be with the thought that when I'm finished mm. with that, then I can kind of tackle my first feature film. Yeah, interesting. Three very different main characters that lead your films. Mm-hmm. Have The winter film is called, you can pronounce it for me. Winter Sonnenwende. <laughs> the summer film is Natsu's Treasure, which in Japanese is... Natsu no Takaramono. And then the latest in the series is Your Spring, and which is Your Spring Endo. So I do want to talk a little bit about, about your sound designing. And um, I know that there's little, especially with your winter film, like the crackling yeah. of the wood and yeah, um, yeah, and the yeah. breathing. Um, is this some, one of your focuses? Like, how do you approach sound? Definitely. I mean, it's something that kind of started happening, especially with this winter film, Winter Sonnenwende being, being the first one and so much work going into the sound made me realize that sound is so important to me. Like, I think I didn't know that when I started making the films, but when we started doing the sound post, A, like, um, the, the sound man, he kind of offered himself. I didn't know him. He just, um, he was a friend of the, um, of the cameraman and the cameraman talked about mm. him. Like, I've got this project. You want to join? And, you know, just to introduce himself, he sent me like a soundscape, what it could sound like. And I was like, wow, that's so amazing. Like, I would love that. Mm-hmm. And when we started working together, I was like, yeah, no, this is like, I, I'm, I was so enthusiastic about everything he offered, the effort he wanted to put into it. And he did put a lot of effort into it. And then I realized, oh, I also have like my own standards. Like, I, I didn't know that, but I was like, oh, I actually hear very well. So like, if there's a tiny little mistake, I won't be happy. <laughs> and also, you know, I, I have also a very, I kind of feel sound very, very strongly. So, um, it's also about that's why the, the the collaboration with the sound people is always very interesting to me and i think i also tire them a little bit because i'm <laughs> very very specific sometimes but um i just i just love that i love i love what it can do i think that's what i love the mm. most i love that basically you could have an image that's not doing much and an actor that's not doing much but the sound can tell you so much or even influence mm. you or trick you because we've done that in other films kind of the sound can you know place in the right moment can lead your thoughts somewhere you know that is not actually what is on screen or somewhere that i want you to be as, a, as an audience so sound is super important to me and just the same um, as music so um mm. so far i think uh natsu no takaramono the, the summer film had the most uh music done for it i don't have a musical talent i, I have a musical ear and i love listening to music but i cannot mm. create it yesterday mm-hmm. actually watching the films again in a row um, I realized how much I love the music at the end of Natsu. Like, I think that was like one of the yeah. best pieces that I have in all of my films that were written for it. Where I was like, wow, this is so exactly, it has exactly the feeling mm. that I wanted the end to have, you know? So even mm-hmm. more than the images. Yeah. So I love that very much. Yeah. Um, the most recent one, Chris Briendo, is 2019. And there's actually a lot of uh, dialogue in that. So how was that difference for you? Because in the first two, mostly you're just with the characters. They're not really much communicating with other people. Um, but in this last film, 
there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of interaction. So how did you um, yeah, create that? Yeah, so basically that was also kind of part of the plan a little bit. So the first film, I already read everywhere, like, keep it simple. For the first one, keep it simple. Mm. Maybe just one location, one actor, that's that. So that's exactly why I wrote a story where that would fit, that, that would work. Like, we shot, I think, in one bedroom, but the rest of it is in the forest. At the end of the day, it wasn't one location, and we had crazy location issues because it's a very huge forest, and we had very different locations. <laughs> but still, you know, obviously we didn't travel during the day. And um, it was that story, and I was very aware you have this monologue, that in the background but it's not actual dialogue you know that has to happen on set so we didn't do any voice recording on set you know we were really just mm -hmm. especially since the sound on set is also very created so we were very free in terms of that you know so in the second film and a little bit of dialogue thinking hey i'm not gonna write a crazy ass long dialogue in japanese anyway <laughs> but also the film <laughs> i wanted her to be in her little world so much that i didn't want her to interact with especially like with adults um, and uh, for the last one, I was like, okay, like you did those two films where people didn't really speak. So now I want you to kind of do that, do exactly that, have interaction. So we had way more actors, way more interaction. Mm -hmm. The film was longer. So I kind of upped the game a little bit on that one. Just And that's that's my plan basically for our, all films. Make it a little bit harder or at least different, you know, like because in mm -hmm. terms of like from the winter film to the summer film, it's not harder in the sense that it was less production and everything, but it was more of a challenge. And it was a challenge to me to kind of be spontaneous also, because as I told you, I like to organize. So I wanted to challenge myself out of my comfort zone and be super spontaneous and see if I can still make a film if I don't have all of that. Or can I still make a film if mm -hmm. I don't have a crew and professional equipment? Can I still make a film if I'm working with people who are not actors? You know, can I just make them act anyway and for the whole thing? So it was a different challenge than the first film. And for uh, this third film, I was like, okay, let's bring all of that together. Like my main actress hadn't acted before, but I also have actors that are professional actors. And also I wanted them to interact. And that's also a different kind of directing I hadn't done yet. But I wanted to yeah. check as many boxes as possible before I go to the first feature film. Basically, so nobody can say, you know, but you haven't done that. Because I know how much people are keen to put you in a box. And that's why also my films are very different from each other because I don't want people to say, yeah, that's the one thing you do. I love this idea of, of putting yourself through uh, through your own film school. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is your, as a self-taught filmmaker, what is something that you're like, oh, someone needs to see either this film or you need to read this book or you need to do this one activity? What is like the one thing that you're like, that has really changed my perspective on filmmaking? It's hard for me to say because I've always, people always ask me, Aya, you like film, what's your favorite film? And I could never answer. Mm. I could never answer because mm -hmm. I have so many I films. Mean, neither can I answer that, right? that question. Because <laughs> I have so many films that I like for so many different reasons and sometimes there are films that I connect with very much not because even that they are great or spectacular I mean most of the time there's something very good about them but sometimes also the company kept the people who watch it with the memory you made you know or just how mm -hmm. you vibe with that one film you know because it really made me mm -hmm. laugh you know not because it's just yeah. the best film ever or anything I mean if I could say like I one film that impressed me the most in recent years was definitely Parasite because I watched mm -hmm. it and I was like wow that is that is different that's not just new and good but it's also different in a sense i think what i loved the most about parasite was i loved how i could feel the director's hands on my emotions i love how i could really mm -hmm. feel like they're playing with you and i know a lot of people say that in a negative sense like ah oh, the director is influencing the emotions and that's not good but i was like no that's exactly my job i want to influence mm. you. i want you to kind of you know be the little puppet master <laughs> and know exactly what you're feeling when and guide you to this you know because it's a ride you know i need to know where the heights and the lows are and with that film, I really felt like the rhythm is amazing. The rhythm and the pace mm. and how everything is kind of planted meticulously. I just felt like, wow, that's that's mastermind level. I yeah. love that. I don't know if I can do that, 
but I very much appreciate. <laughs> I think if anything, this year showing us how to really uproot systems. Yes. Um, so I do want to talk about a very important announcement that was made in Germany and the kind of the subsequent shifts that are happening. Yes. So Ufa is one of the oldest um, film companies in Europe. Yeah. It was founded in 1917, I believe, in Berlin. And I think it was about two weeks ago, maybe a little bit less, that they became the first entertainment company in Germany to announce that they're committing to more inclusion and diversity on screen and behind the camera. Um, And I think the commitment is up to 2024 that they want their programming to be inclusive and to reflect society properly. Uh, LGBTQ+, people of color, people with disabilities, and in front but also behind the camera. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that being in Germany. How has that been, how has that inclusion quota hit certain things that is important and how is it also still lacking and how has the landscape been in general in Germany? I mean, maybe we can start at the landscape. The landscape has been very depressing. (laughs) Like, like I think anyone who grew up in Germany that isn't, you know, just a typical, you know, like, like even women, even white women have, you know, been very disadvantaged in the way they are portrayed, but also in how much they are behind the camera and, you know, the right positions. But when you come, go to like disability, um, LGBTQ plus people, people of color, it's, it's very sad. Like what I've, I mean, I've, I've stopped watching German TV at some point because like I didn't enjoy it. And I felt like actually that's what they need. I think some diversity would actually make it better. Just the content would be better, but also you have mm-hmm. so much, it's, it feels like for me, what's happening on TV sometimes is happening like 30 years ago. It's not my today. It's not, for example, Berlin that I walk to every day. It's not the kind of people I interact with. As I said, on my set, we speak so many languages. And then I watch those right. realities and I'm like, where is that? You know? right. Like, I feel like some six-year-old right. person writing it who has lost touch entirely mm. with the world. Mm. So, But now also, that was my, my impression as an audience, but becoming a filmmaker... I kind of look behind the scenes a little bit and I'm like, wow, there's a problem. There's a problem of inclusion. There's a problem of letting people, you know, to the table and letting them tell their stories. There's a lot of the people in power basically are very outdated in their thoughts and then, you know, what works, mm. what doesn't. And even when I've heard from other colleagues, the kind of things that they would say or think kind of makes you feel like, where, where are they coming from? Like, you know, yeah, kind of yeah, really, yeah. really, really, really old time in a very negative sense, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, but I, there's there's been a shift already. There, there's been a shift happening where you see like okay, people get to act. Somebody, or for example, you would see somebody on TV who is like of African ancestry, but is not playing a negative role, which already is a great thing for Germany. Or they don't talk about the fact that they are not white, which is also for Germany. Wow, you know. And obviously, you know, that's not quite the bar that I'm used to because I watch a lot of American content. You know. That can be problematic Mm -hmm. too, but it's just that they're somewhere else, you know, they have different struggles right now. So sometimes looking better at Germany, seeing where our struggles are, it's like, oh, wow, why? (laughs) But yeah, but for me, I've always tried to tell myself, like, I don't care, right? There's, there are practical problems Mm. that come with it. I know that, you know, I won't, um, might not be taken seriously at certain events or tables. I might not have a chance, for example, if I make my films, for example, they're, they're what they are, but they're not 
talking about how hard it is to be a woman or how hard it is to be an, a black person. And I know that if I did that, I would get more funding, you know, and I, I know that mm. if I put racism front and center, I would get way more money for my films, you know. But at the end of the mm -hmm. day, what I told myself is I just trust myself. I do what I do and, you know, whoever comes on board will come and people already have come on board and I trust that it will get bigger and I trust that it will get better. So I don't really care what they do in a certain sense. You know, I don't mm -hmm. care if they want me at the table or not. I'll be there at some point. So that was kind of my attitude. And um, so the funny thing is about this uh, Ufa thing is that I've been actually kind of working with them in a certain sense for the last six months. I started working with um, Tyron Ricketts who owns Pentertainment, which is like a, a media production company uh, focused on content by people of color, mm -hmm. yeah, about and by people of color. And he's been having this really interesting collaboration with the UFA, also kind of triggering that change, I think, with many, many talks that he had, kind of trying to get them to see that this is the way to go. This is where the future is and anything else won't work anymore. You know, and when you yeah. see the new players coming in, like the Netflixes and all the streaming content people, that's what they want. And that's what they see lacking in Germany. So if you want to kind of play the game, you need to get, you know, you need to up your game in terms of diversity and also how mm -hmm. it enriches the story and how it just makes it better. I think he got them to really understand that. So they had this collaboration for a while now where they kind of uh, work with him on new content, you know, by, by authors of color and trying to kind of develop those into films that will hopefully also have a lot of, you know, just diverse people behind the camera. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so I was kind of behind the scenes when this whole, uh, kind of media thing happened where they kind of declared that they mm. will do that. So I already, you know, read it up front and, you know, kind of said, okay, this is a great idea. Maybe don't, you know, maybe don't write that, <laughs> but you know, it's a learning process. And what I, what I always appreciate really is when people, because I feel like Depending on the experiences, there are things that you've experienced, there are things that you know, you know, or things that you mm -hmm. don't know. And some people, especially when you've been very privileged, there are just a lot of things that you don't know. And I won't blame you for not knowing. I will only blame you for not trying, you know, or for not mm -hmm. listening, actually. You know, so if you've never heard about something, I will not blame you for not having tried. But if somebody tells you and you refuse it and you don't want to listen or you want to keep sitting on your high horse and you don't want to share, then I have a problem with you. And what I appreciate, and that's what I've gotten from the people I've talked to at UFA so far, is that, you know, despite, you know, um, where they're coming from, they're really making an effort. And I feel like mm. that thing that they said, obviously, it's also good for their marketing and their, their, you know, the image and they have a problematic history. So it's great for them to kind of position themselves there. But I also know that they will do that, you know. And at the end of the day, sometimes it really doesn't matter if somebody fully understands the issue or not. If they make a step for the issue to change, you know, that's a lot of things will happen because they also committed not only to inclusion in front of the camera. And that was something that was also that I think where Tyron gave them a really good understanding of that is that it's not just about putting the right people in front of the camera. It's also about mm. who are the key positions behind the camera, who's a director, who's a camera person, who's a writer. Because if you have, for example, if you have a queer character and all the writers are like um, cisgendered uh, straight men, they will probably not do such a good job. You know, they might, obviously, you can research, you can do a lot of things, but sometimes people write also from a place of arrogance or even worse, they write mm. what they've seen on TV. You know, just repeating stereotypes, and that—that that to me is so important about about a, putting a writer's room together of people who have experience, who are part of that space, like who is upholding yeah. that space and who has experienced things that they're writing about. Yeah. So much of what I thought a woman was yeah. just. 
about one of the intersections that I am, came from film and TV. That I find a really interesting thing about that I was like confronting about myself as well. Yeah, no, isn't that insane? I mean, I realized the exact same thing that what taught me what a woman should be is like people who aren't women and who don't even understand women in a certain way. Especially now looking back at the stuff that I watched, like since I have a daughter, so I kind of show her the stuff that I grew Mm -hmm. up with. And sometimes I feel like, wow. That's problematic, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're teaching you all the wrong things, you know? When now we're talking so much about consent and all these things and that we need to relearn, but I think not just men, but also women, relearn that. I remember that I grew up with films where it was so romantic for somebody to just uh, kiss you without saying anything, without any kind of agreement or consent or asking. So I remember, like, I think the first boyfriend I had when I was 14, he asked me if he could kiss me and I was so mad because I thought it's unromantic. And now, you know, like 20 years later, I'm like, wow, he was, you know, he was super woke. <laughs> what a proper gentleman. Exactly, you know? Yes, like, so true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, And then that that's like kind of the bare minimum, yeah, right? Yeah. No, but what I love about the, you know, all of that changing now, you know, and women having a place and, you know, LGBTQ people getting a place in writer's mm-hmm. room and, you know, people of color and everything. It just makes that writing so much better now, so much more complex. Mm-hmm. You have characters that live. And I think we haven't gotten to the pinnacle yet. I think it's going to be so much more no. interesting. Yeah. But I can already see it with my daughter, you know, growing up in a different da- generation, watching those films with me. And she can tell me it's wrong, you know. And her, mm. at her age, I didn't know that's wrong. Wow. But she already knows what's wrong. She already knows what doesn't feel right and what's creepy and everything. You have a lot of stalker material in the rom-coms and night. 90s and it was romantic you know? it was romantic to just not let go whatever she says you know yeah, yeah. so yeah no I, I talk about this all the time with a close friend of mine that yeah we are in the best time right now as as much as there uh, there obviously is a global pandemic going on there are uh, a lot of um realizations around systemic racism and uh, uh the patriarchy and all of these things that make it feel like we're living in a the worst time yeah, it, yeah. it it's more the awareness because this has always existed yeah, right exactly. and now we have this awareness yes, around it yes, and yes, i think yes. that's the biggest thing that's so important to realize about about this time that we don't want to take steps backward there is nothing to go back to oh it felt better back then no now we have young children who are being are able to realize things and we're entering this new um era i, w- I would hope no, I can totally see it with her, just to voice certain things, things that I hadn't realized until 30, she's already there now because it hasn't been obstructed in a way, you know? And I feel like, especially like in the last, I don't know, 10 years, kind of reflecting on racism and the society I live in, I just felt like I, I was really wishing for there to be something horrible to happen. I mean, not, not something horrible to happen, but I was really frustrated with the fact that so many people are so concerned with not being a racist that you just can't talk to them about it. So there's no space for just, it's just that you just called me a racist. Are you insinuating that I'm a racist? And let me shut down that discussion right now and not, you know, and so we can move forward. So I felt like we've gotten to a point where everybody's trying to be so politically correct that we can't say the wrong things, but then also we can't correct them in our minds. We can't make that process that needs to happen. And I feel mm-hmm. like we had discussion, great discussions, you know, also this year I've seen a lot of people where I was like, wow, I did, I think that discussion that just happens right now wouldn't have been possible six months ago, just because something had happened where everybody wants to confront it, you know, in a certain way and has understood something. So I think we are moving forward. I think it's a, as you said, like a super difficult times, but 
they're also letting stuff come out that we've been struggling with, you know, as a global community yeah. in a sense. And again, like Germany is not very forward and for for mm. for certain things at least. And when you when you see like a big company like Ufa making the step, and you know other people will have to follow. And um, mm. or just even seriously, since the marches in you know early this year, how many people have come toward me? Either you know in that company that I work with, but also I'm also. Um, uh, co-organizing a group called Schwarze Filmschaffende, Black Filmmakers and the number of requests that we've had and people come towards us and also not from a, you know on the eye level that, that wasn't mm -hmm. there before, you know, and also not on a, because a lot of times you know, people might request you or your work but you also know that they are instrumentalizing you that they want to use you mm -hmm. to have a certain effect but now we are in a position where we can talk back and they have to listen and they will listen And they will listen and we get to shape a little bit more how we get used, quote unquote, and how we can, you know, what we want to say and how we want to say it. And people are asking a lot and listening. And that's, that's beautiful. That's really amazing for me, at least, to kind of see that happening. Where do you see dangers arise? Well, I see dangers arise when the people, um, especially doing this work also kind of behind the scenes of that and also working with other companies, like especially since I've been with Pentertainment, we've been working on this issue like forever that's you know one of the main things we do or the main reason why people come towards us and i feel like the main danger is when the, the people applying do not really understand what it's for you know what i mean like if the people do it, if you do it to check a box you're not going to change much you know because you're not going to give the right people because if you just want numbers you can do numbers very easily you can trick numbers you know you have to kind of have a goal that is a like an an ethical goal, like a, a storytelling goal, a, a human, humanitarian at least, you know, goal where it's really mm -hmm. about um, wanting to change something. So you can't do a quota and a quota can mean nothing. But at the same time, um, I think a lot of people have, have already said before, you know, commenting on that, without the quota sometimes, we don't have the numbers also say that things are wrong. And we also mm -hmm. don't, sometimes it doesn't work because there are just too many people not really wanting that change. So unless you kind of force it with a quota, it's not going to happen. People always will find a way around it. So sometimes it's nice that people don't just say, yes, we want to do it, but they actually put numbers behind it. But I think that yeah. numbers or not, you need to understand. But I think that understanding is happening, at least in the discussions that I've had since I've been working in that company, I feel like that understanding is happening. And that is really about people understanding that you don't have just to give people a spot you have to give them power too you know it's not just letting it, them into the room it's about also letting them control certain aspects of the room so if you take if you as i said right there have been people working for example um black filmmakers getting funding or, or whatnot but then it's also about certain subjects they kind of choose they kind of direct your what you're allowed to say in a certain way so it's an understanding right, you have right. to understand why that's wrong you have to understand that if you have a lot of black actors on your show you know and it's all about refugees and it's all about misery and it's all about just being poor then there's still something wrong you know if somebody who's you know has is living with disability and is queer and is asian has the right to just tell a wrong come that has nothing to do with any of that and i think that that is what i'm praying for yeah. <laughs> just for people to be allowed to just tell whatever the hell they want and just to shape their world shape give us their vision give us because i always feel like i have a different outlook on the world based on how i grew up and i want others to be able to do the same show me your world show me what you're and i find it so interesting sometimes when i watch content from all over the world but especially from people who have this kind of crossover identity what they can make when people let them is amazing and it's not just 
um, different. It's, it's really good too, you know, and it's new and it's amazing. So more of that, I think like even money wise, people will benefit, you know, from letting people tell their own stories. And I definitely want to see them. How has that experience of setting up the Black Filmmakers Group been for you in Berlin? And what kind of steps have you been making with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't set it up. It was there. I, funnily enough, I got in touch with it when I was looking for the main actress for Rispingendo because I always had it in mind that she was like half Afro-Brazilian, half German, and I was kind of looking and I didn't find nobody. So I started just asking people basically anywhere I went, like, do you know somebody maybe, like a young actress? And uh, at the end of the day, I didn't find her there, but somebody told me, you know, there's this group on Facebook, you know, called Black Filmmakers. Why don't you ask there? So I did exactly that. And uh, but I didn't find her there at the end of the day. But then people I saw the post and I really liked the vibe, you know, in that kind of community, in the group. Mm -hmm. And then somebody organized like a Christmas meetup, but I couldn't go. And then somebody organized a, a February Berlinale meetup. So I was like, OK, I work at the Berlinale. I work like full more than like double full-time basically i don't have time to do anything else but i want to try it even if it's for an hour just to go there to meet those people because i kind of like the space that they created on facebook and then i got to this meeting yeah. where there's just i don't know some 40 50 black filmmakers and i was just so shocked to realize that they exist you know because when you just see the german landscape you don't I mean, theoretically, you could know, but I always felt like, no, you know, I'm isolated and that's normal. You know, one of the only ones mm. that would go kind of this path of filmmaking. But then I saw, no, there's just so many people, so many people and not just actors because I was expecting actors, but so many people behind the camera, right. you know, like writers, camera people, other directors. I didn't expect other directors, you know, and that's also how exclusive this, this yeah, how exclusive this German film industry is because I, I couldn't even imagine that they exist. And then I saw them, so many of them at the same time. So I kind of fell in love with the group right away and I was like, okay, we need to have more of this. I want to get to know all of you. Like, this is amazing. And so I think the girl who organized it at the time just said, like, you know, how about you do it? You know, like, we're not, you know, <laughs> there's no specific organization. You want to have more meetings? Just organize meetings. So I started organizing meetings. I think I did that for like two years, two or three years, you know, regularly every month or every other month, you know, getting people together. And that was a great experience because I got to know so many people. And obviously yeah. as a filmmaker, I kind of make notes like, oh, that person is interested. I think that there might be interesting. And what did they do? What is their work like and everything? But it was also like just from, a, um, you know, just from a human point of view. It was so many, yeah. so interesting, so many interesting encounters and so many experiences. And again, also delving into this, um, you know, these weird structures that the German film industry has. Because as a self-taught indie person still working on short films, I'm not in the industry so much. I kind of pick my people that I work with and I'm not in the regular. I don't work with ARD. I don't work with the big production companies. So kind of hearing from those, especially actors who have worked with them, the kind of experiences they made and the kind of comments that they heard, I was really shocked to, to see like, wow, that's even more backwards than I thought. And this is, this is, this is, you know, mm -hmm. but that just strengthened my resolve to say that, okay, I'm definitely not going to, you know, change my voice and I'm definitely not going to change anything, but I'm definitely going to yeah. push through because like this needs to change. Like, and I don't even want them to change. I just want to take over <laughs> and do my thing. <laughs> when I started doing this, I've tried to go into writers meetings and all kinds of directors meeting or filmmakers meetings. And um, I've met a lot of interesting people there, but I never found like a group where I felt like, okay, this is um, like, A, we totally vibe together. Or also this is because a lot of the groups in Berlin are very amateur. A lot of people, you know, they're getting into it or they're not quite there. The people are different every week. So you have those kind of core people that have been, you know, working on film for a while, but you also have a lot of people who 
you know, still kind of discovering what they want to do. And I felt like I'm kind yeah. of missing the group where people are, people are like more or less my level where like they're not amateurs anymore, but you know, they're not, you know, obviously, you know, super, super, uh, um, successful already, like kind of in this, in this between where we still kind of feel like helping each other. And, um, yeah. I think that was the group, like, I think there's another group kind of a, filmmakers group also that I enjoy very much because they try to kind of gather this Berlin filmmakers community that's exactly at the level I just, just described and kind of connect them with the industry and organize talks and workshops and everything so it's organized by the DFFB and I really appreciate that one but this was a group where I could just get with people who are like at different stages you know some of them are very professional already but because we have this kind of common issue you know, there was an accessibility that they had, you know, that I wouldn't have otherwise in another kind of group, you know. So that was really interesting for me to, to you know, get into. Okay, so before we wrap up, we're going to do like a little rapid fire recommendation section, a book you would recommend. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the first that popped to mind is one that I read very recently. Uh, Kindred, it's called, by Tavia Butler. I read it like very recently you know actually somebody mentioned it uh i i think i was talking about the script i kind of presented the script that i'm writing you know for the autumn film and uh, uh kind of filmmakers meet and somebody mentioned that book and i read it and i absolutely loved it so i would recommend it um an artist a visual artist a visual artist oh i'm gonna choose my friend steve mikuja he's amazing <laughs> He's a, a visual artist from, um, he's just an artist. He's all around uh, from Cameroon originally lives here for a while. And he started out, I got to know him as a poet, but then he started putting music into it and he started putting dance into it and visuals and filmmaking. And I'm just always amazed with what he does. Yeah. Amazing. Everything will be tagged in the show notes. So definitely check it out. Um, a piece of music that you would recommend. Mm. Yeah, let me also something that I watched recently again. Where I was like, you know, I, I really liked it when it came out. Sapé comme jamais by Maître Gims. Mm. He's a French artist and he, um, it has a beautiful mix of this kind of Afro-European identity where it's uh, people from France, obviously, so it's produced in France and from Paris, but they take a lot of African elements and feelings and not in a sense, you know, back home, but what they carry with them, you know? Mm -hmm. Not your favorite movie, but a movie that you think the world needs to see apart from your movies. <laughs> Something also that just popped to mind because I think there's a lot of films that everybody has seen anyway, so that's not so interesting. But thinking of a film where I felt like maybe many people haven't seen it, I haven't found it ever since I watched it at the festival and I'm still very keen on mm. watching it again. And I really wanted to bring my whole family to watch it again. Um, oh, no, I have another one. Ooh. Anyway, I'm going to pick that one either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's called Punch. The English, the English title is Punch. It's a Korean film. Um, and uh, it was at the festival, at the Berlin Film Festival a couple of years ago. And I found it very, very beautiful because A, it's kind of, you know, it's a, like a teenage boy struggling with a lot of things, having a teacher he hates, but then kind of bonding with him at some point. But it's also, it's also about kind of, you know, complex identities because he has a father kind of living with a disability and the mother that's from another country. I think his mother's Thai or something and he doesn't really know her, which is also kind of rare in, you know, mm. Korean film because I watch a lot of Korean and especially also like Japanese content where you don't really have those stories that talk about, you know, multi-ethnicity. So I love, I love that about that film, but just it has a, it's very funny and very sad at the same time. Like it's very touching, but also has some, 
crazy funny comedic moments. So I really love that. Who would you like to take a socially distanced walk with? Mm. Well, I guess the people I work with. I took a socially distanced walk last week. Oh no, a couple of days ago with the actor from my first film, Bader Brunefeld. Really enjoyed that. And also kind of going down memory lane, how we started out, but also kind of retracing where we are right now and what happened in between and what is kind of happening or what our future holds. That was very beautiful. And I would love to do that with, you know, all the people that I work with, with my actors, with my, you know, like cameraman, sound man, just to know, because I always wish them well. And I know that, you know, they support Merrick Bent a lot, you know seeing as I didn't have any credentials at the beginning, but also like there's no money involved, only passion, only love. And they gave me so much of that. So yeah, I would love to work with all of them. <laughs> I love that. I think that's probably the best answer I've gotten to that question. Thank you so much for coming on. I've really appreciated all your thoughts are so fantastic. And I'm just so thrilled <laughs> to see all the, where you're going to go and all Yay. the growth that has come. So <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, for giving this platform. I really love your approach on it. So it was thank really you. exciting. I was nervous, but I really enjoyed talking <laughs> to you. Because, uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> really. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. You can watch a variety of Denise's work on Vimeo and follow her production company, Sunny Productions, all linked in the show notes. If you have been enjoying this season so far and would like to support the second season, please just take a minute and hit that subscribe button and leave a quick review. It's the easiest way to support the development and the reach of the pod. Once again, Happy New Year, wishing everybody a beautiful and peaceful transition into 2021. Till next week with a very, very exciting guest. Stay safe and healthy. Bye-bye.